I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a podcast about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. At the root of our global civilization is a foundation held in common. From this foundation, life springs, and upon it, all our modern systems depend. This is, of course, the soil itself, the very ground we stand upon. And without healthy soil, life as we know it cannot be sustained. 95% of all food comes from the soil, and despite this reality, modern agriculture practices have teamed up with climate change to put us on the precipice of what could be the greatest soil crisis the world has ever seen. On much of the best cropland in the United States, soil erosion is occurring at 25 times the natural rate. Globally, a third of all topsoil has been destroyed, and with current trends, remaining topsoil is expected to be depleted within just 60 years. The modern industrial nature of our agriculture and food systems cannot sustain themselves, and they will not sustain themselves. We have two options, change course or collapse. Today. Joining us in studio is someone who represents a better path in the face of that choice. Someone who worked with some of the modern unsustainable techniques being used in agriculture and decided not only do we need a change, but that he would take part in that change and join the ranks of the men and women relearning what it means to develop a regenerative relationship with the soil as opposed to one of extraction and destruction. Chris D'Alessandro, welcome to Ashes Ashes. Thank you, Daniel and David, for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. And Chris, you let me come by a couple of days ago to your farm. Appreciate you showing me around. I was really fascinated by some of the things you're doing there and uh, some of the things you got going on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're doing and, and how you got involved in permaculture? So it really all started with nutrition was sort of how I got involved in all this. I really was interested in giving my body the best food that I could find. And so that sort of led me into organics. Um, and then from there, I sort of got interested in, in finding locally produced food. Um, and I guess I, from an early point, I sort of realized the connection between the way the food was grown and then the, you know, the nutritional makeup of it. And so I sort of understood that early on, but I really knew nothing about growing food. And so I found in my area a local farm and I went and just to kind of check out what was going on. There was an older gentleman who was running the farm. I mean, he had blueberry bushes and fig trees and a garden. And so I started working with him. And that's really was my first experience working in a garden, working with the soil. But a few things kind of, you know, uh, raised a little red flag for me from the beginning. And that was the excessive cultivation of the soil that we were using in the garden to keep out the weeds. Um, so basically, we were rototilling the garden, we were putting in plants, and then we were rototilling it to keep the weeds out. Um, and that seemed, you know, I, I saw the consequence of that, what would happen when it would rain, um, and we'd get mud everywhere, and then when it would be dry, and the soil would sort of crack and uh, get really hard. And um, we were also using chemicals to maintain the landscape. We were spraying weeds with weed killer. We were spraying insecticides on plants um, to keep the moths and everything off of them. And so, you know, I was I was intrigued by this idea of growing food, but I really wasn't interested in the way that it was being done uh, in, in this model. And so I started asking questions of the gentleman who ran the farm. You know, what if we made some compost? Um, what if we found a way to kind of reduce the, the tillage of the soil? And these were all questions, again, I, I had the question, but I really didn't know enough at that time to, uh, to kind of argue with him. And he basically said that wouldn't work. 
And so that's really all I knew. And then it ended up actually turning out that he put this property up for sale. Uh, long story short, my grandfather purchased it and basically gave me the opportunity to sort of do some of the experimentation that I've been doing there and trying to figure out what a sustainable system really looks like. And so I say that was my first foray into it was just checking out this farm in my area, um, seeing some potential issues. And then kind of figuring out, well, what do I do about that? How am I going to grow food? Because um, once once I knew that I was going to be able to farm this property, then the question really became, well, what am I going to do? You know, there's it's sort of like a blank slate at this point. Um, it's been farmed for the past probably two decades in a rather unsustainable way. So how am I going to tackle this? And again, it just sort of was a natural progression from going into organics, looking at composting, soil health, and then a natural progression from there into permaculture, regenerative agriculture, some degree of biodynamics, biomimicry. These sort of terms and ideas definitely resonated with me. And once I found them, I sort of just hit the ground running and trying to implement as many different things as I could to see what worked. That's great. I really want to take that thing that you said there about regenerative agriculture, because you mentioned that this farm had been farmed for a couple of decades unsustainably. Yeah. Well, for people who are listening in who don't know much about farming, could you explain maybe a little bit about what unsustainable agriculture is and also provide hope that maybe that there is ways that we can bring this land back to a way that is uh, productive again? Absolutely. So I think the good news, maybe this is a good place to start, is that there's going to be a lot of bad news. Uh, but the good news is that we can actually do a lot of good. And if we if we're intelligent, in the way that we work with some of these landscapes and ecosystems, I think that there's a lot of potential for us to really turn things around because we've we've been in a hurry to kind of deplete these landscapes of their natural fertility. Um, and so I guess big picture, I would say unsustainable farming is anything that's really taking more than it's giving back. Um, and so in my mind, when I think of regenerative agriculture, I'm thinking of we're able to actually harvest food and we're able to return more to the land in terms of nutrients than we actually are taking out. I mean, that's that can be a somewhat difficult system to achieve. And so I've looked at different ways of doing that. I'd say the biggest issues that I see that make an agriculture unsustainable are the overcultivation of the soil and the overuse of uh, petrochemicals and other poisons, basically, to try to manipulate the landscape, to manipulate um, insect populations. Um, so I, I'm definitely in favor of a much more holistic view. And I think the soil cultivation is probably the biggest one that's leading to uh, really unsustainable loss of topsoil. And you've been growing some really incredible things on your farm. So one thing that really strikes me is that you kind of got into this just kind of learning on your own a little bit, right? I mean, you you had some experience under this farmer who told you basically, hey, you don't know what you're doing. You can't do it the way you, you want to do it. When you went into this, how confident were you that you'd be able to figure it out? Um, you know, I definitely had a, a little crisis of faith there and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do it. And you know, again, this is where it goes back to me. This whole process has sort of taught me that there is hope and that you really don't have to be, you know, this farming stuff. It's not particle physics. It's not rocket surgery. It's pretty simple. I mean, really, when you get down to it, it's not that complicated and it's fairly intuitive. And I think kind of common sense almost. And I think that a lot of the problems that we're trying to struggle with, to grapple with in agriculture really come out of the practice, how we're farming. And we create some issues um, and then we try to deal with them in a way that I, I feel is sort of like a Band-Aid type of approach. And so, yeah, I think the, the good news is, yeah, you don't have to be an expert in this. Um, really, sometimes it takes just walking outside, observing, kind of reconnecting a little bit. You know, again, I, I grew up in the suburbs playing video games. So my experience outside was limited. And beyond that, I really wasn't thinking in terms of landscapes and 
and ecology. I was outside just being a kid um, having fun. Oh, well, I'm glad someone with the same background as me can get into this because playing video games is all I did as a kid. It's good for hand-eye coordination, helping to pull weeds and, and run the tractor and everything. It's definitely helpful. There, there's that farm simulator video game, though. Have you guys seen that? It's <laughs> People spend hours farming virtual farms. So maybe there is interest in this. Well, maybe we could transfer some of that uh, some of that energy into farming some real farms and getting some food produced. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned soil and how important that is to farming. So let's take a look at topsoil for a second. Now, it's easy to get lost in all the technological achievements of society, especially as we increasingly move to urban areas and lose touch with the rural world that supports our high-tech lifestyle. But in the end, we owe all the success and growth of civilization to just two things. And now I think the Farm Equipment Association of Minnesota and South Dakota summarize it the best. Despite all our achievements, we owe our entire existence to a six-inch layer of topsoil and the fact that it rains. But then the question becomes, well, what happens when that topsoil is gone? Now, that may seem like a weird question and an impossible event, but it's actually a serious concern. And as we mentioned, the UN estimates we only have 60 years of topsoil left at current rates of use. And spoiler alert, those rates are increasing. But before we get too far into this, let's take a second and step back to briefly understand what soil is. Now, uh, if I'm being honest, Chris, when I started looking into soil, I was dreading it a little bit. I knew it's important. I knew there's like pH and nutrients and these things all play into this. But in the end, it's, it's soil. I don't know how interesting it could be. But as I researched, I got more and more interested and maybe a little obsessed, which is something I think you can relate to, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let me try and briefly sum up topsoil here and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong with this. And the very brief version is that topsoil, the part that's really important to agriculture, is the top six to 18 inches or so. Uh, in most places, and some places are much more, and some places don't have any, of soil. And this is where all the action occurs, so to speak, in plant growth. Uh, This is where the roots go down and the plants extract all their nutrients and do a variety of chemical reactions to grow and sustain life. Now, good topsoil is rich and diverse and filled with tens of thousands of microbes that are all balanced and doing a variety of jobs. We can think of these microbes almost like the bacteria in our own digestive system, at least in terms of how plants use them. Healthy soil protects the immune system of the plant, provides all the nutrients, things like carbon, nitrogen, and ensure robust growth, right? Absolutely, that's correct, yes. But the healthy, rich soil is looking more and more like a thing of the past. This is due to a variety of threats. Overfarming can exhaust soil and force the use of lots of fertilizer to make up for this, but that harms the microbes in this process, and those big industrial machines, well, they crush the soil, making it even worse. Monoculture limits the variety of the microbes in the soil, hurting plant health and yields, and poor land management means that tons and tons of valuable soils literally just washed away in the rain. Globally, that's at a rate of 30 soccer fields per minute. That's a lot of topsoil lost. And the problem with that is that topsoil generates at, depending on what source you're looking at, something like 500 to 1,000 years to generate just one inch of healthy, rich topsoil. Now that's a problem. This all adds up the serious effects. Over the past 40 years, an area larger than the U.S. and Mexico combined has been, quote, degraded, a technical term meaning agriculture is worse there, all because of human activities. And 30% of all arable land has become completely unproductive. All this while we need to double food production over the next 40 years to feed our rapidly expanding population. Now, you don't have to be a farmer or rocket scientist to realize that this is going to be a problem. So, Chris. Tell us a little bit about soil. 
Um, well, I think you're absolutely right, David, that unfortunately topsoil um, in nature is really not a renewable resource. But the good news is, again, I think that if we're able to come in and sort of uh, understand the system, the process by which topsoil is made, we can sort of hack that system. And instead of taking a thousand years, 500 to a thousand years, uh, we can actually replenish landscapes really quickly. Um, and so an example I like to give is, um, you know, where we're growing most of our grain in this country right now, you know, used to have quite a, a depth of topsoil there. Um, and that topsoil probably would have been built through a, a very important piece that's missing from today's agriculture. And that would be through these ecosystems engineers, animal interactions, basically in the ecosystem. And so things like bison, birds, um, all of these animals would be interacting with this ecosystem and adding nutrient to the soil, you know, keeping these nutrient cycles happening. They would be sequestering carbon. They would be um, grazing and manipulating plant matter. Some of these larger animals like moose and elk, bison, other large herbivores could be potentially clearing forests, removing underbrush. So the animals played actually a really important role in building and maintaining these ecosystems. And so in today's modern agriculture, we sort of isolate and segregate everything. The animals are kept confined away from the grain fields and the, the manure that would have traditionally been fertilizing those lands now sort of is sitting in cesspools. And then we also simultaneously are having a, a fertility crisis on the farms where, you know, we're worried about the future of phosphorus. We're worried about uh, the long-term effects of chemical fertilizer on the land and especially in our waterways. Which are things we'll discuss later in this episode. So yeah, I think soil um, to me is really, there's there's a few things that are really key about soil. And one of the things I like to point out to people um, is that the bacteria are very, very important. As you mentioned, um, just like our own guts, we need probiotics. You know, I don't really know. It seems like some of the research on probiotics, they don't really even fully understand exactly what all these organisms are doing. And it's a lot of the same way in the soil, you know, with nematodes and all these different bacterias. Um, some of them, we don't know exactly, you know, what they're doing, but my understanding is essentially that plants have nutritional needs and they will use these microorganisms basically to shuttle nutrients around the soil. And so another key piece of, of moving nutrients around through the soil, in addition to bacteria, is also fungus. Um, and in my experience, in my work at my farm, I find fungus to be one of the most important partnerships to develop um, because I'm, I'm focusing a lot on perennials, woody perennials, trees, shrubs. And in those sort of environments, just like in a forest, you would have decomposing leaf litter, you would have rotting logs breaking down. The primary decomposers of those things would be the fungus and to a certain extent, bacteria, earthworms, other little critters. But I think the fungus is a really important and overlooked piece of soil health because it's able to transfer nutrients directly to the roots of plants in the same way that some of these bacteria are. So that's a, that's a really key piece that I think is missing from a lot of our food production today is that we don't really have uh, a way to return, an effective way, in my opinion, to return a lot of these nutrients to the soil and close some of these nutrient cycles. And that's really what the, the purpose of the fungus is is to break down a fallen tree and turn it back into topsoil. And so in some sort of ecosystem where you have degrading material that's being broken down and decomposed, you're going to find fungus. And that fungus is always going to benefit the soil in a good way. And I, I, there's a lot of fear, I think, that comes out of fungus. Uh, you see mushrooms popping up in your garden and you're not really sure, is this good? Is this bad? Well, I was definitely unsure. There's some really strange looking mushrooms that have popped up. Uh, but, but, you know, in my experience, the relationship has always been beneficial and I've seen very little evidence that adding these sort of materials, whether it's wood chips, which I'm a huge fan of, or leaves, or some other sort of carbon, I think is really beneficial. 
Well, I definitely saw this when I visited the farm. I remember just like walking onto the garden area and I literally felt like I was stepping onto like a different planet or something or or at least something that was alive. The soil was so spongy. Felt like I was walking on something that was breathing. And you showed me how you can dig into the soil. And just by pulling up a little bit of this soil, we see all the fungus in the soil interacting with the the roots and the plants. I like how you compare that to the gut biome because I think it's just something that we just haven't really understood, right? We've been pumping chemicals into the soil, which seems to give us some short-term benefit, but some of those chemicals impact those microbes that are living there. I think I read somewhere that you can get a small patch of ground and there could be over 10,000 species that are interacting with that soil. And as an example of how important these things are to the soil, so you show me a pear tree and it's 25 feet tall. It's beautiful. But it didn't look that way two years ago, right? Tell us what happened with that. That's correct. So um, this is an heirloom variety of pear that was not really a new a new cultivar that's been bred to be resistant to some of the blights and diseases. And so it got fire blight and basically the whole tree turned black. It looked like somebody had just charred it. And so I thought at that point the tree was dead. So I cut it down right at the ground level with a chainsaw and hauled it out of there and was planning on waiting for the stump to rot a little bit and to replant it with something else. And a few months later, there comes a huge shoot coming right out of the ground. And within two years, the tree is now 25 feet tall, just shot right up from that established root system. And the tree is is healthy. And so when I saw this shoot happening again, I was very surprised. I thought the tree was dead. So I immediately brought in some mulch. Um, I brought in some rotting logs and some uh, carbon based material, piled it up around the tree. And so far in those two years, we haven't had any issues with disease on that particular tree. And it's very healthy. And you can you can literally take some of those logs that you've set there and you um, and roll them out and you can see how some of those roots are actually growing into those rotting logs and I guess deriving nutrients from it. That's right. So the log provides a nice, cool and moist microclimate for the soil. Um, worms and other animals, little lizards and geckos and all sorts of things will congregate under there and make their home. And the biggest benefit really is that, yeah, as that log is being being decomposed by the fungus, the roots of the tree will grow right into it. The fungus will shuttle nutrients to them. And and another key component of this, uh, I guess that you guys mentioned is water. And with some of these systems, we're able to reduce our reliance on traditional irrigation uh, simply by really getting carbon and organic matter into the soil. I see a lot of focus in agriculture is placed on nitrogen in the soil, which obviously is important and plants need, but sort of the unspoken and is now coming into the, the mainstream thought is that really carbon is a huge, huge importance in the soil. And that if you have nitrogen without carbon, it's you're sort of out of balance. You really need both in the soil to be present. Those are really interesting points, Chris. And brings up something I, I think we really want to talk about here and Drive Home, and that's the chemical relationship that we have with modern industrial farming. And there's really three elements that are the big part of this. It's shortened down to NPK, and that stands for nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And the big key on this, the first one that we're going to focus on is nitrogen. And if we go back almost 100 years ago, mankind was facing a crisis. The population was growing at rates that had never been seen before, and agriculture just wasn't able to keep up. There were questions saying, well, if we keep growing at this rate, are we going to be able to continue to feed ourselves? And the problem was that there just wasn't enough nitrogen fertilizer in order to maintain this level of industrial-scale agriculture. Up to this point, they had been using things like back guano, which originally were in huge piles 30 meters deep from South America, from places like that, imported all across Europe. But that resource began to run out and people started panicking. What are we going to do? Lots of research was put into figuring out, well, how can we pull this nitrogen that's in the air? It's the majority of the air we breathe, 70%, and get that into the ground in a form that plants can use, in ammonia or something. 
And it all came down to a German chemist named Fritz Haber, who realized that there was a simple way, though energy intensive, in order to pull this nitrogen out of the air and put it back into the ground. And this process revolutionized agriculture and revolutionized our world as we know today. To take the world from a little over one and a half billion people to over seven and a half billion people today. But increasingly, there are concerns that nitrogen may in fact be bad for the environment in a variety of ways, something we'll discuss a little bit later. So Chris, maybe you want to discuss a little bit about your farm's relationship with fertilizers and what you think that might be able to carry out to agriculture as a whole. Sure. So my farm, we don't actually purchase any fertilizer. And uh, basically, when I set out from the beginning, I wanted to try to create a system that had as few inputs coming to the farm as possible and as many outputs. So I was interested in diversity, um, but also in minimizing the amount of things I needed to spend money on to actually make food grow. And now nitrogen fixation isn't actually a natural process that occurs in the soil if you have healthy soil. It's just industrial agriculture, as I understand it, they add so much food to the land and they overshoot the carrying capacity of the soil that they have to artificially inflate it back up because they're not treating their soil in a responsible, sustainable way. So what are you doing in order to allow your soil to be done sustainably? Okay, that's a great question. I mean, just really quickly, I'll point out that I'm not an expert in any way in how some of these processes work. And and frankly, some of the chemistry is a little above my head. But my understanding is basically that this particular form of nitrogen, this soluble nitrogen um, from these salt-based fertilizers is uh, the analogy that I gave Daniel the other day was that it's sort of like if you're thirsty, the difference between me pouring a gallon of water over your head as opposed to giving you a gallon of water for you to drink at your leisure. Um, And that's sort of what these chemical fertilizers will do. The plants will uptake as much as they can, but then there's only so much they can use at that time. And so the rest of it will sort of basically get washed out either into the groundwater or into waterways. In that sense, it's somewhat I think a little inefficient with a lot of these applications of fertilizers, you got to be really careful about your timing. You don't want to use too much or you can burn your plants. And so it's sort of a little bit of a fragile system, in my opinion. If you can progress towards something what's called like free living nitrogen in the soil, where basically, you know, certain plants will have a symbiotic relationship with nitrogen fixing bacteria like leguminous trees like black locust or Siberian pea shrub. But other plants like wheat and corn are not able to form those symbiotic relationships. But if you have free living nitrogen fixing bacteria in your soil, they don't actually have to form a symbiotic relationship. They're just making nitrogen available to the plants. And so if you can foster those sort, and that basically goes back to plant probiotics, you can actually buy these organisms and you can inoculate your soil with them, or there's natural processes by which you can get them in your soil. And basically that is through increasing your carbon content and providing basically an environment in which these sort of microbes are going to thrive. And that sort of environment doesn't involve soil tillage or cultivation of the soil, generally speaking. And when I first started farming, I was very staunchly anti-tilling. And I I would, as a point of extreme belief, I would not plow my soil or do anything to it of that nature. And now I've sort of backed off of that a little bit because I see that there could be potential applications for it. But basically, to get back to the question of, of how we fertilize things, I'm sort of in into to this practice of biodynamic composting. And there's a lot of folklore that goes into biodynamic composting that I don't uh, really do so much of. But to me, the principle is basically that we're going to make the compost out of as many different parts and inputs as we can. So when I started farming, I tried to look to the different nutrient profiles and breakdowns of different animal manures. 
and I noticed that there were some discrepancies and differences among the different types of animal manures and applications for each of those. Um, and so I came across rabbits was an interesting sort of discovery for me that rabbit manure, unlike other manures, is not considered quote unquote hot, meaning it's not too high in nitrogen so that it'll burn your plants. And you can actually use it in your garden and around your trees and shrubs without composting it. Um, and it's very high in phosphorus, high in nitrogen. And so I, I learned about that and I thought, you know, this is a great way that we could produce our own fertilizer and relatively cheaply because, of course, we have to pay to feed the rabbits. But the rabbits were also able to supplement a great portion of their diet with the produce that we grow with just weeds and grasses. So that's one way. You know, I think that uh, a lot, again, a lot of the fertility issues on farms today, I think, are because we've segregated some of these systems. The animals are not able to uh, sort of interact with the landscape in such a way. We, we've sort of created these farms where we, we push out everything. We don't want anything to live or grow there except for our one particular crop. We don't want birds. We don't want insects. We don't want anything. We just want a nice, beautiful field of hundreds of acres of grain. And, you know, obviously there's problems that come along with that. So my big thing was making compost out of a lot of different inputs and sort of covering all your bases, just like investing. I think that diversity is always good. You get as many different inputs as you can and really have your nutrient bases covered. Um, And the other big thing was, of course, keeping the soil covered. This is like a really foundational piece that I think is, is sort of broken in agriculture is that when the soil is uncovered, it's really vulnerable. It's vulnerable to being eroded by wind and rain. It's vulnerable to being dried out by the sun. And these sort of beneficial bacteria, these free living nitrogen fixing bacteria don't really like that sort of environment. And in the long term, it can lead to the soil being compacted and the depletion of organic matter and topsoil. So that was a big thing for me is to cover the soil, keep it protected and always add way more than I'm going to be taking out. So whenever every plant that goes in the ground at my farm is getting amended heavily with compost that we've made on farm from the inclusion of different animal manures. And I will say just really quickly as to the process of how we make that, there's a lot of different schools of thought as to how compost gets made. There's many different methods. Basically, boil it down into a nutshell, we just use chickens and their natural scratching instinct to basically keep the material aerated. So we'll bed an area with something like wood chips, sawdust, um, leaves, really whatever carbon-based material we can get our hands on. And then we'll incorporate chickens into the area for however long we need. And with the inclusion of their manure and that scratching and aeration, they really create a very, very rich soil very quickly. And so in some cases, we've actually enclosed chickens in areas where we've planned on gardening or planting things and allowed them to build the soil there in place and then moved them off that site. Um, and gardened in it or planted things. And then in other cases, we've had them build soil in an area and then we've gone in with screens and wheelbarrows and we've shoveled that material and screened it and sifted it and then brought it into another location, into a garden or somewhere else. So there's there's obviously many ways to go about getting these nutrients back in the soil. And uh, you know that's just sort of the method that I went with is using these, uh, these very intelligent animals who have these uh, sort of intrinsic desire to whether they realize it or not, they're basically building incredible, incredible compost. And just sort of by working with them and letting them express their natural instincts, we're able to really make sure that we don't have a fertility crisis on our farm, basically. That's so interesting. And you brought up, Chris, two things specifically that I think we really need to come back to and we'll hit later in the show is both diversity of species, integrating these, and this concept of segregating things on a farm, which I think we can translate to a lot of areas of life. But before we go on, David, you mentioned overshoot and how the the nitrogen revolution played a role in this population explosion that we've experienced over the past hundred years or so. And 
I think this concept, this concept of overshoot and carrying capacity, it's not something that we've really addressed in detail in any of our shows yet, but it's central to the ideas of sustainability and the risk of collapse and something we'll definitely dig into deeper in another show. But but just really briefly to kind of go over this as a concept. So a species cannot grow and expand without the inputs of energy and food. And when resources are more freely available, growth can occur. And as resources decline, so do populations. The level of resources, and resources encompasses a variety of different things depending on the species. It could be light, it could be physical space, prey, plants, shelter, whatever. These things define the carrying capacity for a species in a given environment. So carrying capacity is the maximum size of a population that can be supported by the environment given two things. One, the rate at which the species consumes resources. And two, the rate at which those resources can be regenerated. And what's so important about that function is the role that time plays. So long as the rate of change in the availability of resources is such that a species has time to respond, and so long as consumption of those resources does not exceed the regeneration rate, a population size will adjust to meet this carrying capacity. But this balance can be disrupted, and it results in something called overshoot. And we see examples of this in the real world. Put a bunch of nutrients in a petri dish and introduce a couple bacteria cells. And those cells will divide and grow exponentially, consuming the plentiful source of food until the population has doubled to a size unsustainable in your dish environment and the population collapses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, algae blooms do the same exact thing in response to large quantities of nitrogen runoff, which is something we're going to talk about in just a little bit. And so once a species has grown beyond the carrying capacity it will necessarily shrink. There's no preventing this. It can happen in a slow and managed way if populations respond quick enough. But when there are delays in perceiving and adapting to an overshoot of the ecological footprint, it can result in devastation. And the reason delays are so dangerous is because of exponential growth. When an economy or a population is doubling every so many years, the change can seem small at first, But it's those last one or two doublings that come on so fast that responding and adapting become almost impossible in those final hours. And right now, our economy still perceives exponential growth as the highest goal. These are really important points and something that we're going to dedicate an entire episode, if not multiple episodes, to in upcoming weeks and months. But in the meantime, Daniel, maybe we can discuss how we got into this unsustainable position in the first place. Yeah, okay. And and to do that, we really have to look at the history of agriculture as an industry. And the development of agriculture in the United States has a long and storied history, beginning with mostly subsistence farming during early settlement, to periods of rapid expansion and new markets made possible by technology and railroads. And high demand for U.S. exports during World War I led to a boom for farmers who took on massive debt to buy out their neighbors and consolidate operations. And this led to overproduction after the war when European agricultural activity resumed, which caused land prices to collapse and many farmers to go bankrupt. But this set in motion a series of government programs aimed at providing financial security for farmers through price controls, subsidies, and loans. And following World War II, the industry continued to benefit from advancements in technology, both mechanically So these are things like electric pumps for irrigation, large tractors and combines, grain elevators, all kinds of stuff like that. But also chemically, like you mentioned, with nitrogen, also fertilizers, herbicides, pesticides, these types of things. 
And these things really took off. And from 1945 onward, the agricultural industry saw unprecedented productivity gains, and farms continued to get bigger and to consolidate. And and I want to focus on just one aspect of this history for a second, and that's the role that debt and investment has played. You know, the economic boom and subsequent bust of farmers in the 20s is very interesting, and that's because it's not historically unique. All right, so let me read a quote from a, a book that was first published in the 50s describing the period between 1815 to 1821. Quote, Resumption of importations hurt U.S. manufacturing, but the downtrend was checked by European demand for American farm staples. As farm commodities soared and bank credit was liberalized, a wave of land speculation occurred. However, with the collapse of foreign markets, prices broke. Land values sank rapidly and numerous banks failed. That sounds like it could come from just about any decade in history, not just 1815 to 1821. Well, no doubt. I mean, this cycle actually repeated itself three times leading up to just 1929, the Great Depression. And it's super important to be aware of how financial incentives can pervert the system because it's not just terrible for the farmers themselves. And it really is terrible. I mean, not only can debt expose a farmer to financial shocks, but the stress associated with it can lead to mental and physical problems. I mean, it can strange marriages and families. I mean, these are the types of things we don't typically think about, but it's important to keep sight of the human element here. But as bad as these cycles are for farmers, it's bad for all of us because it disrupts that balance that we mentioned earlier related to overshoot and natural carrying capacity. It does this by putting massive pressure on the consumption side of the resource equation while neglecting and even weakening long-term destruction on the regenerative side. Let me illustrate what Daniel's talking about. In the 1970s and 80s, high inflation and other financial considerations put massive pressure on farmers to dramatically increase yields and ramp up production. And now when the bank requires you to pay a 12% loan, but your grain doesn't grow at 12% compound interest, what do you do? The fastest way to increase production is to simply acquire more land. So small farms get bought out, farms are consolidated, and all that competition raises land prices, driving everyone in the system to take on even more debt. And additionally, money is poured into yield-raising technology and chemicals. And all these factors, they combine, and they lead to diminishing returns and the destruction of the environment, undermining our ability to grow food in the future. These are things like the conversion of forests, swamps, and other low-productivity land that is important ecosystems, but would normally be cost-prohibitive to farm. These lands are converted to farmland, and huge inputs of energy and cost are pumped in to raise their productivity. These fertilizers and chemicals destroy those microbes in the soil that we talked about. Heavy equipment compacts the soil. And these efforts to squeeze every ounce of production from the soil and as fast as possible, driving down yields as well as polluting and destroying ecosystems we depend on, these efforts ignore concepts like carrying capacity and put us into overshoot territory. So, I mean, Chris, do you see uh, a debt play a role in some of the struggles that modern farmers are facing? Absolutely. I think a lot of probably, you know, I, I sort of would, would defer to Joel Salatin on this. Uh, he's, he's a pretty big name and he talks a lot about this. Basically that farmers today are sort of saddled by this this debt, which also corresponds to this fear. And, you know, sometimes I wonder like, why not just change your methods? You know, if you know that what you're doing is, is probably not going to work in the long term, why not just change? Why not try to switch over to something that's more regenerative or more sustainable? And I think the answer probably is in a lot of cases, it has to do with debt and fear because these people are, you know, 
hardworking people that are basically could theoretically lose their land, lose their livelihood if they don't continue to produce. And uh, so I think that the f- there's a fear aspect, you know, why not go to organic? Well, if we do and we don't produce food, then we're going to lose our farm. So I think that's a huge thing. And the other thing is it's really, it's a, a huge barrier to entry, whereas most people are not going to be able to get into farming because if you want to become a chicken farmer, for instance, you're going to need a, a loan and a contract with a, a chicken supplier who's going to basically, you know, saddle you with a, a mortgage for a quarter of a million dollars or more to build a chicken house. And so, you know, if you can get into the farming game without having to to saddle yourself with debt, for instance, you know, we raise chickens using pallet structures. We're talking upcycling junk, basically, that doesn't cost anything. And of course, again, it's not on the same scale. We're not raising tens of thousands of meat chickens in a, in a little tiny footprint. But the concept is that we can still make a great living and we don't have to subscribe to that model. And it can also be regenerative and not have to go into debt. Um, And I would say probably right now, the biggest thing preventing young people from getting into farming would be the cost of land. But the good Mm -hmm. news is there's other ways for them to get into the game, so to speak. You know, you can work on farms, you can rent land. Um, There's lots of options of family land. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of farmers I know are either working on family land or it's rented land. Yeah. And this is one of the ways actually that this debt cycle is continuing today. 40% of all cropland in the United States is that rented cropland, like Chris just mentioned. So that means it's investor-owned, but they lease it out to farmers to farm for them. And many of these times, the owners live hundreds of miles away or even in different countries. The amount of foreign-owned U.S. farmland has doubled between 2004 and 2014, and we're seeing consolidation increase. According to the Census of Agriculture in 2012, it's something done every five years, so we're about to get the new one, the percentage of cropland acres operated by farms over 2,000 acres grew significantly in the past decade. Meanwhile, large financial institutions like those pension funds that are hungry for yields that we talked about, David, they're also pumping more money into agriculture as a vehicle for investment. And with that investment comes the expectation of high returns, 12% in some cases. And what's interesting is that while debt and financial pressures push many of these commercial farms into using unsustainable practices because of that fear, that fear that, hey, I have to produce because if I don't, I'm going to lose my farm, like you're talking about, Chris. Well, smaller farms that aren't inundated with debt, who use older but wiser practices and are diversified, whether they're part-time or full-time, they seem better equipped to withstand financial shocks and weather variability. Farms with lower levels of debt can raise food cheaper than huge farms can, and that calls into question the economies of scale and efficiency of those large operations. Well, do you feel like you can? Uh, Because a lot of the inputs you use on your farm are made by yourself and, and grown on your farm, do you feel like you can ultimately, whether now or in the future, grow crops cheaper than someone who is relying on big equipment and investments and debt to do larger scale things? I would say that that the profitability is definitely there. So, I mean, I could really make a decent living on five acres. I think a lot of people could. You know, there's there's some farmers that you can, you know, the literature is out there. They're pulling in six figures on an acre and a half, two acres, uh, vegetable farming. Um, and so, you know, there are different models out there, but I think that, uh, that there's no reason that you can't be financially sustainable on a small scale. And so the idea that you need to scale to such a large degree, obviously, we needed that to, you know, maintain the food supply in some degree. But I think this this congregation of land and, and you know, sort of being wound up in industrial agriculture and these large agribusiness before that, all of the food was really being grown on a more diversified, small scale type 
of environment where people farming anywhere from five to 50 acres are producing most of the food because there's a lot more of them. Um, and then that consolidation happened, as you guys referred to. And not just farms. I actually saw a stat today that uh, back in the 40s, during World War II, when the government was pushing people to start growing their own veggies and, and things like that, I mean, everyone had these small little victory gardens and 93% of all Americans had victory gardens. And it constituted a not insignificant portion of the entire amount of food that was being eaten in the United States at that time. It's something that has worked in the past and has shown to be sustainable. Absolutely. And so I think there's a happy balance. You know, you can have a, a balance of, you know, people producing their own food. For instance, uh, you know, I, I see a lot of uh, on the roadsides alone in this country, we probably have almost as much acreage as there is in national parks. We've got uh, lawn, which is a whole nother subject. But basically, the lawn culture in this country is a very resource intensive debacle. It doesn't produce any food and we spend all this time and money sort of feeding into it. And, you know, if those spaces were converted into food productivity, I'm not going to say that it would totally eliminate our dependence on these sort of commercially grown foods, but it could really, as you said, it could be a not insignificant contributor to the food system. Well, good luck going up against the big grass industry. Am I right? Yeah. Or even worse, <laughs> homeowners associations. Right. So yeah, there's obviously there's there's barriers to this sort of thing. You know, there's sort of what's considered, you know, normal. Um, and, and that's obviously not a normal part of our culture is seeing food growing in people's front yards. But I think that that landscape and that climate could be changing as we sort of move into to seeing some of the real effects of the, some of the cracks in the food system starting to show people may be more inspired to sort of move to a system like that. Yeah. And this isn't just crackpot theories. I keep seeing scientific reports saying that by the 2040s, the world and the United States is included in that are going to be facing serious and severe food shortages, partially because of this arable land loss and also because of our population that's going to continue to be dramatically growing. Factor that in with climate change and this is a crisis that's coming. So the faster we can get into this other mindset about, well, maybe we should be looking at some of our own ways of eating some of these calories in order to protect ourselves from some of these shocks now rather than later. Well, and I'm glad, Chris, that you mentioned profitability. I found a side-by-side -side comparison of farm input costs by the Ohio Extension Service in 1984 with the cost of an Amishman in the same year. And so for the Ohio farmer to yield 150 bushels of corn per acre, the average cost was about $400 per acre at this time. And for the Amish farmer, it was just $44, which is just slightly over a tenth. So, and obviously it's not just the Amish, like you're saying, like you're experiencing this on your own farm, but I guess you also mentioned balance. And is there a trade-off? Are you sacrificing some short-term yields in doing these more sustainable practices in exchange for a more long-term benefit? I think there is a degree of that. Yeah. So in the beginning, when I was sort of designing this system, I was really looking at a balance between perennials and annuals. And so, of course, whenever you're planting perennials, we're talking about fruit trees, nut trees, berry bushes. There's going to be some sort of, of latency period where we're waiting for those things to come into productivity. And of course, in that time, we're making no money off of them. So to me, that was sort of like the savings account. And in order to balance out that latency period, we need the checking account in the meantime. So that's where you move into things like annual vegetables. Um, animal husbandry, things like that. And so I sort of created my own, I guess, system and theory of profitability. And that was basically to plant perennials, knowing that in the future, I would have a, a diversified, relatively secure means of income. Of course, nothing is bulletproof in farming, but um, diversity of perennials, I think, really lends itself to being a pretty resilient system. So that was one piece of it. 
The other piece of it was finding something to make money on in the short term. And the two main ways I did that was raising animals and selling pork at the farmer's market. And the other way was uh, creating a commercial kitchen in which we could value add everything we were growing in the garden. So we sort of hit a peak. There was a ceiling at which there was only so much produce we could really sell at our local market. We're not in a huge city. There's only so many people. There's only so many restaurants. And so we sort of hit a peak where we have all this extra produce that we're just feeding to our chickens, which is great to help cut down on food costs for the chickens and the eggs were amazing. But we found that if we could value add those things that we were basically feeding to our animals, we could value add them into a product like tomato sauce or dill pickles or elderberry syrup, that that would really increase the profitability of the farm. And so that was that was our strategy from the beginning was focus on perennials and then find something in the short term that we can sell as a high value product. Um, and so we sold everything really as a premium a premium product. You know, And this is sort of where I get into the economics of this. Some of the food items that we're selling are really at a price point that wasn't actually accessible to the, the majority of people in this country. We were sort of selling at a premium price to upscale restaurants. That was sort of the model that we sort of fell into in the area that we were at. And that's not to say that there's no other model because there's plenty of ways to make a farm profitable. A big thing with for me for profitability was that there was basically, again, there was a ceiling at which the price point was we really can't go any higher. We can't sell our tomatoes for more than $4 a pound. We can't sell our eggs for more than $6 a dozen. So the only way to increase the profitability in my mind was to reduce the input costs that are going into making those things. And so obviously the big inputs are going to be fertility inputs, and then inputs to control pests and disease. And so if we could eliminate the pests and disease through holistic management practice, we don't need to pay for those things. Um, And if we can create our own fertility on the farm, we don't need to pay for that. Um, So that was really another key piece of of trying to make this thing profitable, spend as little money as possible. Well, let's talk about that fertility for a second. So we go back to those three main elements that are the core of farm fertilizers. And let's, let's look at that P element for a second. So phosphorus. This is the linchpin in future sustainability of industrial-scale agriculture because phosphorus, unlike nitrogen, isn't something that's just unlimited that we can pull straight out of the air. We have to mine this. And the fact is, there's not a lot of it on the earth that is economically viable. Now, in terms of how common it is, it's a very common element. It's one of the 11th most common elements on planet earth. But there's very few places where we can pull it out that makes sense in order to put it on our food and grow it. Namely, Morocco, which has somewhere between 75 and 85% of all phosphorus reserves in the world that are economically viable. Yes, we could pull it out somewhere else, but it's going to make your $4 pound of tomatoes a $12 pound of tomatoes. And that's not sustainable for civilization or for anybody in order to purchase and be able to eat this healthy food. So what happens when we run out of phosphorus? Well, just like with topsoil, everything collapses. And while there's a lot of debate on just how much phosphorus there's left, depending on who you ask, it's anywhere from 50 to 60 years to 150 years. That's a time limit on civilization if we don't wake up and start working on more sustainable practices like Chris has been telling us about. Yeah. And and another aspect of the sustainability piece is something you just mentioned, Chris, about increasing your profitability by lowering costs and doing that in part by keeping pests and weeds away, right? And this is something I saw when I visited your farm that really fascinated me is in keeping the soil super healthy, very nutritious so that your plants are healthy, they are better able to withstand disease and infestations from pests. And that goes back to something we discussed in our wildfire episode, David, which is a lot of forest in California, for example, are so dehydrated and so sick that they don't have the resources to fight off what is becoming an epidemic of bark beetle infestations. Normally, they would be able to push these bark beetles out of their tree trunks, but because they're so dehydrated and sick, 
the soil is not giving them the nutrition they need, they can't do that. And so you are able to keep the soil nutritious, Chris, and that keeps plants healthy, helps them fight off infestation. But another piece of that is the diversity of species, right? So tell me what you discovered about goldenrod on your property. <laughs> sure. So uh, this was sort of a, a lot of these discoveries on the farm have sort of just been by accident through observation. And so uh, you know, planting all these fruit trees, uh, all different kinds, peaches, plums, persimmons, figs, um, lots of other things. And I started reading some of the agricultural textbooks, things from the extension uh, office that were basically saying you're going to have an issue on your fruit trees on the new succulent growth with aphids. Um, and so there's, of course, sprays that they recommend for this. And what's an aphid? Um, you know, aphid is it's basically a little insect that uh, will populate pretty quickly and it can wipe out. They feed on this sort of tender growth. It's a tiny green bug that ladybugs eat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's no bueno for your plants. So yeah, so they they feed on this new growth. And of course, if uh, as we talked about here with the population, right, they're going to proliferate sort of to the food source that's available to them. So if you have a lot of new succulent growth happening on your trees, especially in the instance where this is a risk of potentially of overusing nitrogen fertilizer on something like a fruit tree, you create and stimulate a lot of new succulent growth. And that new succulent growth is potentially uh, vulnerable to things like insects and disease. And so I had read that basically aphids are going to be an issue. Um, and sort of by accident, unintentionally, I started mulching my orchards and then the mulch basically eliminates, you know, when you put down six to eight inches or a foot of mulch, it really forms a very effective weed barrier. But certain things will push through, uh, whereas a lot of the like vegetative growth that gets covered and smothered and died, uh, woody perennials like goldenrod start to thrive in this environment. And so I basically selected, unintentionally selected for this goldenrod to become kind of a quote unquote weed. And at first I'm thinking to myself, this is going to be an issue at some point. We're going to have to deal with this somehow. And of course, it was really too much to maintain. There's goldenrod coming up everywhere. And so rather than trying to think this is a problem, I have to get rid of it, I sort of just left it and started looking into it and learning more about the plant. And that's when I found out it's actually a good uh, late season source of nectar for my honeybees. So I decided, you know, I'm going to leave it and let it flower. And then before it goes to seed, I'm going to chop it down. And so I started observing it as it's growing. And I noticed that the aphid population was totally almost 100% concentrated on the goldenrod. Every stem of goldenrod, of which there were thousands, had aphids loaded on it. And when I looked at my fruit trees and all their succulent growth, I didn't see any aphids. And so I basically think that for whatever reason, having this other plant growing in the orchard provided them with a preferable alternative, a great abundant food source that they could be drawn to other than my fruit trees. And in, in traditional fruit tree culture, traditional orchards, those things like goldenrod are a weed. They're eliminated very quickly and they maintain almost like a sort of like a golf course type of landscape. And so, you know, that golf course landscape is, is beautiful. Potentially, theoretically, it looks nice. It's easy to mechanically harvest and everything. But in terms of ecology, you're definitely losing something. So just by letting this random weed grow, we basically eliminate an entire pest issue that could have really stood to damage our trees pretty significantly. That's such a great example of solving a problem, using, a, you know, putting ecology on your side, letting nature and the complexity of that sort itself out and, and not this very hubristic human approach of like, oh, aphids bad, let me spray them to oblivion and in my single monoculture system and then just create more problems for myself. Like you mentioned, how much of our problems in agriculture and in the industry side of it is self-created and now we're just trying to layer band-aids on top of band-aids and never getting at the root of the problem. <laughs> oh, we're going to have one of those every show, I think, now. Right, David? Sorry, everyone. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's great. I love I love that example. That's such a great example, like Daniel mentioned, of the problems with monoculture agriculture. But it's not the only way that this is something that can be problematic. Yeah, that's right, David. So another uh, potential issue with monocultures is that, for instance, almonds in California is a very large and profitable crop. But because of the fact that it's grown in monoculture and the almonds only bloom for a few weeks out of the year, there's no nectar flow the remainder of the year for the native pollinators to utilize. And so they basically, their populations collapse and they move on. And so the only way that we're able to sustain food production in these systems is to basically move around honeybees around the country to pollinate these farms for us. Um, And honeybees aren't actually native pollinators. They're uh, from Europe and Africa. So uh, we we obviously utilize them, but they're in some ways not the best pollinators. And I think it would be a a good practice if we could encourage some of that diversity of pollinators on our farms um, and and bring those native pollinators back. Well, let's talk about honeybees for just a minute then, because it's such an important topic to agriculture, so much so that like you point out, there are people who travel around beekeepers with these beehives, renting them out to farmers for the couple of weeks when they're having blooms, then collecting their hives and moving on to do it somewhere else, which seems almost comical of how much we have to imitate this natural process, but that's really the crux of this industrial system. But our honeybees are are in danger right now. And not just honeybees, but insects across the board. So there was a study just recently, they've lost 75% of the insect biomass in Germany over the past few decades. We've seen 15% decreases in butterflies almost every single year, and especially these beautiful monarch butterflies. I remember growing up, even in the suburbs, seeing these butterflies just everywhere in the summers. It was something you just expected and saw. You wouldn't note it unless there were tons of them at the moment. But now I rarely see a butterfly. And when I do, it's like something to behold to say, hey, look, it's a butterfly. And we all ooh and off for a moment and then it's gone. But that's just a quick way that we're seeing our world rapidly change, partially because of climate change and partially because of a number of factors. So let's take a look at this real quick in terms of the honeybee, because this has gotten a lot of press. We've even seen silly Black Mirror episodes making up ideas of oh, what happens when the bees are gone. But it is a serious problem. These colonies are collapsing. Um, it's something actually they've defined as colony collapse disorder and why that's happening, well, there's a lot of different ideas. So one of it is, like Chris discussed, the monoculture and the lack of consistent nectar throughout the season means that sometimes these bees aren't getting enough nutrients, or they have to go farther for nutrients, which is damaging to their health. And this plays into also a climate change factor that it's just the food that we have now isn't as nutritious as it used to be because of rising CO2 in the atmosphere, something we'll discuss in just a moment. Three, The pesticides used on these monoculture and genetically modified crops, things that like Roundup Ready seeds, are probably really bad for these bees and are causing some of these colony collapse problems. And fourth, because these colonies are in more stress because of all these factors adding up, well, they're more susceptible to disease. Just like these plants that have poor soil are more susceptible to disease, just like we are when we're not getting enough probiotics are more susceptible to disease, well, these bee colonies are the same. And when they've weakened, when they're stressed, funguses come in and finish the job and the colony collapses. So it's not just one single factor that comes into this, but an amalgamation of all these systems, all these problems that we've introduced because of our industrial scale of agriculture that are wiping out this critical linchpin that we all rely on for almost all of our food. You know, so I keep honeybees and my whole philosophy with the bees, um, you know, the thing with beekeeping is you can get a lot of different advice depending on who you ask. If you there's a a little saying, if you ask five different beekeepers, you're going to get six different opinions Um, because there really is not a a quote unquote consensus on what the proper way to manage the bees is. Um, So I, I sort of have some foundational principles that have worked well for me so far. 
Number one is to let the bees keep their honey, right? So obviously for commercial beekeepers, they're in business, they need to make money. Honey is far more valuable um, than some of these uh, honey alternatives, quote unquote, that they're feeding back to the bees. So basically they're taking the honey and the best case scenario, they're feeding back sugar water. Uh, In the worst case scenario, they're feeding back like high fructose corn syrup or other sort of pseudo sugars. And so that's, you know, I think from a nutrition standpoint, the bees really, they're making the honey for a reason. It's a perfect food for them. It's medicinal. It never goes bad. I think that honey is is a really important food that we humans can utilize also. But to me, the, the goal was to leave the bees their honey at least most of it. I would take what I need and leave them enough. So what I but the thing is, it's hard to figure out well how much is enough, how much is too much. So basically, what I did is I started just leaving the honey in the hives through the winter to make sure that they are absolutely going to have enough honey to get through the winter, and then in the spring. The following spring, I would then harvest the honey right before the nectar flow started again. And a lot of beekeepers will harvest their honey in late summer, early fall. Um, But the problem with that is now you're taking their food. If if you harvest too much or the bees, you know, have too many bees, they eat too much honey, whatever. It's sort of a gamble. And if the bees are gambling, they're gambling on how many bees they're laying and hatching out, how many are going to survive and live through the winter to go into next spring. And so if you throw off that balance and take too much honey out, um, you could really, you could collapse your hive right there. They could starve through the winter and then you have to make up for that feeding them sugar. So in the name of keeping profitability, right, sugar is still expensive. I don't want to have to go out and buy all the sugar to maintain my hives. So basically my, my first principle was let the bees keep their honey and then I'll harvest it the following spring before they start bringing in more. And the other big thing was that I tried to go what I consider treatment free. And so the biggest thing in beekeeping right now is there's a lot of debate about which chemicals to use in the beehive. There's antibiotics that people are using. They're using uh, different types of what is considered soft treatments made out of herbs like thyme uh, up to more quote unquote hard treatments that are basically pesticides uh, to try to to combat the varroa mite, which is basically creating an issue for honeybees. So I I think there's a lot. We could probably fill a whole podcast with information just about the honeybee. Uh, But to keep it brief, I think, again, sort of using nature as a model, letting the bees keep their honey and increasing diversity of flowers, you know, trying to create three to four seasons of nectar flow for your bees is is very important. And obviously, commercial farms just frankly aren't able to do that in in this current paradigm. I wonder if there's anything that we won't feed high fructose corn syrup to at this point, right? (laughs) (laughs) Babies, bees, whatever. But I want to go back to something you mentioned, David, about nutrition. That is an interesting component of this bee population is the nutrition that they're getting. And one thing that's super interesting in a kind of depressing way, I guess, is the way that rising CO2 levels is being connected to decreasing nutrition in our plants all over the world, including these plants that bees depend on. And this is research that's kind of new. It's not getting a lot of attention at all at the moment. And David, we discussed in episode seven how rising CO2 levels might be having a negative impact on human health. Researchers discovered something interesting recently. Um, It started in 1998. They figured out that if they shine light on algae, they could make it grow faster. And algae, of course, is an important food source for the plankton in our oceans and lakes, which themselves are crucial to so much of the life that we as humans depend on. And obviously, these researchers assumed, hey, if you can make algae grow faster, you can provide more food for the plankton to grow. But that's not what happened. As the algae grew in response to this increased resource, the plankton in their experiments couldn't survive. And they discovered that the nutrition content of the algae had decreased. The sugar to nutrition proportions were changed. And so connecting that back to the CO2 levels, 
in our air. Some researchers are beginning to believe that these rising levels of CO2 are causing similar nutrition losses in plants all over the world, just like that algae in that experiment. So here's, here's a quote from one of these scientists who has been studying this issue. Quote, Every leaf and every grass blade on earth makes more and more sugars as CO2 levels keep rising. And we are witnessing the greatest injection of carbohydrates into the biosphere in human history. An injection that dilutes other nutrients in our food supply. And this is a startling claim that is not getting a lot of attention, like I said, but there is mounting evidence to support this. Uh, A 2004 study found that protein, calcium, iron, and vitamin C had decreased in most fruit and vegetable crops significantly since 1950. And although at the time this was not connected to atmospheric CO2, scientists are beginning to suspect that it's a major factor. More recent studies have shown that increased CO2 lowers minerals like potassium, calcium, zinc, and iron in a majority of plant species, including protein in some of these goldenrod species that bees depend on. And it suggests that we could experience a further 8% loss in these nutrients within our lifetime. So just another front on the battlefield of um, plant health that we'll be dealing with in the coming decades. In a rich and fertile topsoil, you're going to build up what's called a humus layer. Um, And this is a layer that really builds and thrives in a no-till type of environment where you're not cultivating the soil. Uh, And in a nutshell, this humus layer is very biologically active and its function is to hold water and minerals in the soil to make them available to plants. When, and it's sort of like a fine wine. It gets better with age. The less it's disturbed, the better it gets. When you're constantly cultivating and plowing the soil, you lose this humus layer. You start losing this very uh, biologically active layer that's holding on to the minerals. And and so a big thing in, in plant nutrition is that we're told that nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium are basically, that's it. That's kind of, that's what the plants are fed and that's what we're told they need to grow. And that is true. But that's a sort of as an analogy, like me saying that your body only needs protein, carbs, and fats. Well, that's true. But you also need all of these trace minerals. You need copper, you need manganese, you need iron, all of these other minerals Mm -hmm. that keep the plant healthy. And in an instance where you don't have this biologically active layer of soil, yeah, you can force feed the plants nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium with fertilizer, but you really can't make up for that lack of mineral. And those minerals are very important to our health and, and also for flavor. And although that's not maybe as important, most people wouldn't think of flavor as being a critical reason for trying to farm in a sustainable way, I noticed that as, you know, obviously I can't provide numbers or scientific data, but my own empirical evidence is that when food is grown in this way, in this sort of sustainable manner where you're really caring for the soil, the food tastes so much better. Whereas a grocery store tomato might just taste like a glass of water. Honestly, it doesn't have a lot of flavor. Uh, the tomatoes that we're growing are just mind-blowing. And I saw that not only in my own experience, but in the reactions of people and customers at the farmer's market who were trying our tomatoes and other products produce, really noticing and picking up on that flavor difference, which really goes back to the soil health. Well, I mean, it's kind of like um, wine tasting, right? Wine has three components of flavor. I'm probably going to butcher the wine lingo here, but you have the specific grape, whether that's a Chardonnay, whether that's a Merlot or whatever. You have the way that it's aged, like the way you process it and barrels and things like this. But also the third and very huge component of this is the soil that it's grown in. You literally taste a difference in different wines depending on where it's grown. It can be the same grape, it can be processed the same way, but it's that soil that makes a difference in the flavor. It's not even just the soil, it's also how much sun it gets, which direction it faces. If it's on a hill, all the shade, all this plays into that. And in fact, 
this actually ties in really well with everything. To control better some of these things, modern wine producers have found that it's difficult to grow good wine the way you're supposed to. So they've turned to chemical additives that they add to wine, and almost every single winemaker does this now in order to emulate some of these processes that are just too expensive to do naturally. And there's a growing movement in wine for something called natural wine, which skews all these chemical additives and techniques to go back to the original sustainable old style of wine production. So that goes along really well with the conversation that we're having here right now. It's sort of funny, too, to tie this even more back into our conversation. Wine production is at huge risk from climate change. All those careful amounts of how much sun and how much warmth that affects the taste of these grapes, well, it's changing dramatically and changing very quickly, faster than these vineyards can keep up with, and ruining crops already. And as climate change continues to increase at its rate, well, this is just going to get worse. And one of the ways that this is going to play out also is intensifying our topsoil loss. As we pump more and more energy into this weather system, this climate, well, that also means that we pump more water vapor into that. For every degree increase in temperature, we had 7% more water vapor into the air. And that has a variety of effects. Water vapor is a potent greenhouse gas, but also it just adds more rain. And so while we might have less rain overall, when we do get rain, it tends to be much harder and much more concentrated. And this affects soil loss dramatically, because while long, slow rainstorms might seep into the soil slowly and not affect dramatic erosion, the hard, fast, intense rain places are getting a year's worth of rain in just a couple of hours. Well, that wrecks the soil. It wipes everything away and even fields that are well protected in terms of responsible soil management. Well, they can't keep up with these dramatic increased water flows. One of the ways that climate change is intensifying all these problems that we're already beginning to see. One thing I'll say there real quickly, David, is just that that is exactly why it's very important to design into your farming system some degree of resiliency, some type of shock absorber to the system so that when you do get this monsoon rain, you can handle it and it doesn't potentially wipe you out. And so that's really, to me, what we're designing around. I mean, yeah, when everything's great and the sun is shining and the weather's beautiful, there's no issues, but that's not reality. And so we need to be prepared for those sort of shock type events that really could wipe us off the map, you know, wipe a farm off the map. Um, and so that's where it goes back to not tilling the soil or trying to find ways to, you know, again, soil erosion can be mitigated very easily. You keep plants, you know, roots in the ground and you stop plowing it. And there's very little risk for that sort of uh, erosion and runoff. But so yeah, shock absorbers into the system are really critical. And, and our, our modern day farms are really lacking in that area. They're very, very fragile and susceptible to these sort of, um, mm-hmm. you know, huge weather events. And it's not just the increased weather variability, but the heat itself. Because of rising temperatures, it is estimated that we will see a 40% decline in crop yields in California by mid-century. This is a result of increased winter and nighttime temperatures. So some crops actually need a certain number of chill hours. I guess, you know, plants need to sleep a little bit too, right? But some of these crops will be hit pretty hard. Walnuts for one. Our national supply of walnuts come pretty much exclusively from California. And California supplies 75% of the global demand for walnuts. And these are one of these species that is going to experience rapid decline because of these raised temperatures. But it's not just walnuts that come from California, but things like peaches, strawberries, tomatoes, avocados, grapes, corn, rice, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I guess this raises a big question in my mind, Chris, which is I wonder if this wouldn't be such a huge problem if we as a nation and globally didn't put so much pressure on regions like California 
to supply this insatiable 24-7 demand that we have for things like walnuts to be placed on our grocery shelves year-round, no matter where we are. So what are your thoughts on a food system like that, as opposed to one where maybe people eat what is in season and can be grown and produced locally? I think for a lot of reasons, that makes so much sense. Um, you know, if you can really focus on what's able to be grown in your area, close to you, um, that's really how I feel a lot of communities are going to become resilient and prepare for these potential disruptions in the food system. So we need not just resiliency on individual farms to withstand these climate changes and effects, but also in communities of farms and the way that we actually eat our food and, and get our food. And, and some of that also goes back to consumer preference and consumer demand. Um, you know, I think consumers uh, really have a lot of power with the way that they spend their money. And if that's something that they're interested in pursuing and, and gravitating more towards a localized seasonal type of food economy, you know, if that, if that was in the consumer's interest, then we would start seeing probably a progression towards that much quicker. Well, we're really spoiled, right? Like I expect I can walk into a grocery store at any point during the year and buy all the vegetables and fruits that I normally do. And like, oh, why isn't there a perfectly ripe avocado in this store in the middle of winter or in the middle of summer or whatever season it is at any time? And I guess that's why I was reading this stat and, and the average piece of food that we eat travels between 1,000 and 1,500 miles. That's on average. That's not a sustainable practice. Right. And I think part of it, too, is, is uh, you know, again, I'm, I'm a big fan of diversity, of spreading your risk. And when we focus on an area like California because of its natural productivity and we, we focus a very, very large percentage of our food production there, again, that's to me, it's not a it's not a shock absorber. There's no buffer built into the system there. So I don't like to keep all my eggs in one basket. And I think if we could, you know, really every area of this country and really everywhere in the world, there's plenty of food products that can be grown. And, and one thing I'll just say really quickly that I learned on my farm was that there's so many fruits and vegetables and food products that I didn't even know existed because they're not something that's traditionally seen on the shelves of the grocery store. And yet they're very, very well adapted to grow in our climate. And so I think that if people can sort of get in touch with those things, Japanese Japanese persimmons, pawpaws, um, you know, some of these different tree fruits are very good for you, very easy to grow, and they thrive in a variety of climates. Um, and yet there's really no commercial production of these things happening whatsoever. I mean, as a consumer, I agree, David, that we're spoiled. But at the same time, I think I would really enjoy it if every time I walk into a grocery store, it's like, you know, I wonder what fruits we're going to have here. I wonder what vegetables we got in season. Maybe if I'm traveling across the country, it's like, like Ooh, this, this looks good right here. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, have you ever been to, you know, North Carolina? You got to check out their selection of, of crops. It's unlike anything you see in, in somewhere else, I think. Well, we've lost a lot of variability even within the fruits that we eat regularly. I was looking at this chart and tomatoes, just to pull one of the examples, like there were 405 different types of tomatoes in the U.S. in 1903. And 80 years later, in 1983, we, we were down to about 75. And this is true with almost every single type of food. So lettuce, there's almost 500 different types of lettuce at the time. And now we're down to like somewhere in the 30s because everything else is just maybe they weren't commercial enough. You couldn't grow enough to be um, economically sustainable on this large scale. So we just stopped cultivating it. Now you can't find it anymore. We're missing out on, on things that our ancestors will be able to enjoy. Well, I think a lot of it goes back to, you know, we have to kind of select for these varieties that are well adapted to growing on these large scale commercial farms. Mm -hmm. So they've been selecting for tomato varieties that they can pick green and then ripen them with gas or that are very portable. And they're not selecting for things like flavor. Um, you know, they're more concerned with disease resistance, really disease resistance and, and portability, because if the mm -hmm. plants aren't disease resistant, they're going to succumb. 
Okay, I'm going to quickly change gears just for a moment. We've been talking about lots of problems and solutions along the way with Chris here. We're so happy to actually be able to have some positive things we can say for a change on this show. But I also want to address some of the topics that I usually hear people say, well, yeah, these are problems that you've discussed, but we're going to be saved by this thing. And well, some of those things that are supposedly going to save us, well, they're kind of problematic. So one of the first ones that I get a lot is like, oh, yeah, you know, climate change is going to destroy a lot of this arable land. It's going to make crops that we normally grow there not sustainable. Desertification is going to happen. We're going to see shifting weather patterns. We're not going to have that stable climate that has enabled agriculture over the past 10,000 years. But it's okay because we'll just shift north and the tundras and, and boreal forests of the north and the south will suddenly become fast bread baskets of the world. Well, you know what? Uh, that's a nice story. And I sort of assumed at the time when I first heard it, like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I guess that'll be right. It'll be good for Canada. It'll be good for Russia. Well, when I started looking into the soil of these regions, well, I started seeing some problems. And so again, let's talk about that topsoil for a second, something that takes thousands of years to generate at any level that's capable of sustaining any sort of industrial scale agriculture. And while there are ways around it in the techniques that Chris has been talking to us about, Maybe that's not sustainable for seven and a half billion people that we see right now. And in the future, 10, 10 and a half billion going forward. So quickly, let's look at this. Uh, not all soil is created equal. Much of the more polar regions have soil that isn't suitable to all agriculture, at least not on any sort of industrial scale. Now, the three main soils that we have here are podzols, which are sandy, low moisture and low nutrient soil that's only really suitable for grazing, at least without intensive fertilizing to make it more fertile for these agriculture at industrial scale. Gelosols, which are highly lacking in nutrients, and then a low nutrient class of intosols, which is one of the most common forms of soil and can be extremely rich and productive, especially around rivers where all the sandy soil is deposited rich with nutrients. But in places like deserts where we haven't had lots of rotting foliage for years and years building up, being processed by these microbes, well, this soil is nutritionally empty and not suitable for farming. And this is most of the soil that's going to be opened up by this warming process. And we can't just shift our agriculture to these without dramatic fossil fuel investment. We already spend so much fossil fuel on our current level of agriculture. Back in the early 1900s, one calorie of oil, and yes, you can measure oil in terms of calories, would give us 2.3 calories of food. But now that equation has flipped, 10 calories of oil will give us just a single calorie of food. And having to enrich this soil even more and then transport it from these areas to population centers that need it, well, that's going to make that equation even worse. And that's not sustainable. The other big techno fix I routinely hear is what will be saved by vertical farming. And this is a techno fix. So let me quickly just give you a sense of the scale and, and you'll quickly see why this won't work. So maybe I should first qualify what vertical farming is. This isn't like a natural uh, process of, well, we're going to grow trees and then things underneath the trees or vertical scale um, construction where we control every single part of this process from the bottom to the top. This is literally we're going to grow food in skyscrapers food in internal multi-story greenhouses, except there's no glass to let the sun in. There's just going to be walls. I'm going to replace everything with LED lights and control every single component of this. You can quickly see how that would be energy intensive, especially when you have to replace the sun, this limitless, bountiful source of energy for your food, for these plants. But let's get a scale just of how much space this would take. So there's 922 million acres of farmland just in the United States in use at this moment. If we use just a quarter of that current farmland and converting it to vertical farms, that would be 230 million acres worth of buildings that either need to be built, repurposed, or maintained. To put that in perspective, the largest arena in the world is the Philippine Arena, 37,000 square meters, or about 10 acres. So we need 23 million of those. 
That's that's a lot. I don't think that's going to happen, David. Yeah, and even if we were able to build that, think of the ecological impact of all that construction. Okay, so what if we repurposed instead all the current industrial uh, retail space that we have right now? So we have all these stores going out of business as they get replaced by online centers. What if we converted all of that instead to farming? Maybe that would be more environmentally responsible, right? Well, the problem is it's just not that much. So we have about 24 billion square feet of industrial space. That's about the same as how much multifamily space we have, uh, excluding single-family homes and condos. Now, an acre is 44,000 square feet. So that means we have about 550,000 acres of industrial space. And then an additional maybe 400,000 acres of retail space. If we combined all that, we're still just 1 million acres. And we need, again, what's that number? Um, 230 million? It's not sustainable. It's not going to work. The scale of this problem is just ridiculous. We can't replace our current agriculture with these vertical farming meccas. Though we can maybe use it as ways to have sustainable local agriculture, but there's no way that we can repurpose this lost land, this loss of arable land that we're seeing from a variety of factors with just this ridiculous technological fix, not even talking about the energy requirements of this process. Well, David, I think that will transition us into the most important part of this show, which I I guess we've kind of integrated into a lot of these discussions, but that is, of course, what can we do? And I love how you break down the numbers on this potential techno fix of vertical farming to show that it's simply not sustainable. But I think we can really uh, conceptualize this idea of technological innovation as a solution to something that's very simple. And that's this. If your system is unsustainable, directing technology towards maintaining that system doesn't work. It doesn't just delay the inevitable. It also magnifies the resulting consequence of that overshoot we talked about. So a reliance on future tech innovation is a clear indication of unsustainability. And to really illustrate that, look, at one point in the past, you could extract 100 units of oil by consuming one unit of oil. And today, that same unit of oil gets you only a quarter of what it used to. So what we're experiencing is a very rapid process of diminishing returns when it comes to trying to apply tech to keep us in this unsustainable system. We don't need a better chemical or a bigger tractor to squeeze more crops out of an increasingly sterile soil until we reach a point where the cost becomes so high that we just can't sustain it. We need the exact opposite. We need technology that's in the form of community organization, in the form of human skill and knowledge, and tools that are aimed at cultivating resource practices that can sustain us indefinitely and that can regenerate the soil and keep our plants alive. And my thinking of technology is this, that on my farm, I really have a lot of the technology that I already need. And so I sort of look to technology like a chicken. To me, a chicken is a brilliant piece of technology. They, yeah. um, you know, it's a natural living, breathing, quote unquote, technology that's really the best fertilizer spreader, the best cultivator, the best insect uh, control um, that really we could possibly come up with. I mean, chickens have eyes like laser beams. They can see things that you can barely even see with your naked eye. They're very adept at finding and scratching for different insects and breaking pest cycles. Um, so I think if we work with some of the things that nature's already provided us, I think that the technology is really already there. And so I think the mistake we make is that we're looking to to something made out of steel and wires and stuff or something made in a laboratory to sort of be this this techno fix um, when in some ways the tools are really already there, we just need to figure out how to use them. You know, again, we're we're raising something on the order of nine billion meat chickens in this country every year. If we were to turn those nine billion chickens loose on our crop fields to fertilize them in the off season, 
um, you know, we could be you know, that that would be a huge impact on those farms. And so I think, um, you know, I'm not against technology. I use technology on my farm. I use wood chippers. I use chainsaws. These are all technologies that I think are very important. And if we can find ways to create biomass by chipping up a renewable resource like a hardwood tree, um, that's a really great thing. But in my mind right now at this moment, I believe we already have the technology that we need. Um, we have the ability to go in and to basically create large amounts of biomass um, to to seed large areas. Um, we have the technology to, uh, as far as genetics goes, we we can selectively breed for the types of animals that are well suited to different climactic regions. Those are the sort of technologies I think that we should be looking towards. Um, you know, natural plant breeding, natural animal husbandry, and and not to say that there isn't some sort of more traditional quote unquote technological improvements that could be utilized to help you know uh, move us into the next generation, so to speak, of food production. But I, I think that it's also dangerous to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater and say that these natural technologies aren't applicable. And so uh, I, I tend to, to think that the, perhaps a marrying of the both of those things, natural technologies with some man-made technology, I think that we have a lot of the tools at our disposal right now. Well, no, that's such a great point. And that's, that is exactly, I think, the point that I'm trying to get at here is that, like you said, we already have the technology and rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, we already have the example that nature gives us of, of balancing systems, right? And the only reason why we need to create new technology and technological innovation to keep us going on this path of exponential growth is because it doesn't make sense. And we're trying to create something to solve a systemic issue without addressing the underlying structural flaws. And this really comes back to our need to question indefinite growth, right? Our modern economy has been structured around the concept of indefinite growth, which is why so much of our efforts in technology are aimed at increasing growth. But if we don't realize that everything we do and our very existence sits on an eight-inch foundation of soil, we are in big trouble. We demand compound returns of our money and our economies, but plants don't grow according to those standards. And if the natural growth and regeneration rates of our soil cannot keep up with our financial demands, maybe it's time that we start questioning the sanity of those demands. Instead of trying to maximize growth, we should ask what level of growth is compatible with biology and sustainable agriculture. And beyond that, questioning the things that we do with our agriculture. So a huge amount of the agriculture in the United States is devoted to creating biofuels, things that are inefficient, wastes of energy, and don't really make an impact in our fossil fuel use in the first place, but are huge contributors to things like topsoil loss. Specifically ethanol. So questioning things like our ethanol production, looking at the perverse incentives farms have, things that cause them to consolidate, to become conglomerates, large, out-of-touch farm operations, instead of these smaller, more sustainable farming practices like we've been talking about today. And then our choices as consumers of what products that we buy. We've talked in the past about trying to avoid things like processed sugar, corn syrup in our sugar episode, but also carrying those same ideas to what fruits and vegetables we buy next time we're at the grocery store, or even better, the farmer's market where we can get locally grown products. And this is another concept that we should all be thinking about. In the same way, Chris, that you have found benefits to have a diversity of species close together in your farm, 
It's possible that we need the same type of diversification within our communities. So some who study city and land development suggest that the way we try to compartmentalize and separate human activity, kind of like how you were talking about our desire to separate the pigs from the chickens, from the crops, and, and compartmentalize everything, keep them safe from each other. We do the same thing with our neighborhoods and our cities. And, and some people who have looked into this believe and think that part of this is responsible for a lot of the sprawling that we see going on that leaves destitute in its wake. So an example of this is we don't like putting factories next to neighborhoods. So we put them really far away so we don't have to deal with the pollution. But when you move a factory away from outspoken citizens, workers, and the owners and the communities it serves, you're also removing the accountability and the pressures on that factory to maintain good air quality and waste management and things like this. So the factory then feels it can get away with unnecessary pollution, which eventually drifts down into poor areas that can't afford to move away, and at some point gets so bad that it starts impacting those wealthier areas that were far removed. But these wealthier citizens can simply move away, and it sets in motion a cycle of growth and decay. I mean, we see the same things in rural areas, but instead of a car factory, it might be an animal factory. So, and maybe part of this problem, like we touched on, is this global demand for foods that put pressure on commercial farms to squeeze as much yield out of the soil, no matter what. But I wonder if it would be more difficult to have unrealistic demands if we were not so removed from the source of our food. You know, I go to McDonald's and I expect to get a quarter pound beef burger whenever I want it. And I don't have to think about where that beef comes from and what went into making it. But if our farms and food systems were locally integrated within our communities, so that not only do I know where that beef comes from, but I also understand the costs associated with producing that beef, the physical ecological destruction of overproduction and things like this, would I demand it if I knew it would result in harm? Not to some distant place that I don't have to think about, but harm to the soil, rivers, and lakes that are in my own backyard. And would that create a healthier environment where people are working together to create something more sustainable, something more long-term, as opposed to just outsourcing everything and moving away when local conditions don't agree with particular aesthetics. Do you want to add anything, Chris? I would just say briefly that um, a lot of the ideas that we have about what is actually productive in terms of farming, and we talk about yield as a huge focus. Yield is really relative to me. Yield goes back to the soil. The yield is only able to be what the soil can sustain. And we've been in a situation where because of cheap fossil fuels and everything, we've been able to sort of artificially boost our yield. I mean, so I think that the big thing is is going back to figuring out how to rebuild good quality soil. And, you know, the, the mm-hmm. I mentioned at the beginning that there's good news that we can build soil very quickly if we're intelligent in the way we're designing it. Um, and so I think that, you know, really in a lot of communities around the country, they're sitting on gold mines and they don't even realize it yet. They could be easily growing a lot of food in these communities, especially in rural communities. I mean, there's uh, every municipality across the country has availability and access to things like leaves, wood chips, sawdust, horse manure, whatever. And a lot of these things end up as a waste product. They end up going into the landfill. Again, developing new technology could certainly be helpful, but sometimes it's really just about shuffling around and finding a way to reuse and, and utilize better what we already have instead of wasting a lot of it. Yeah, that's so important. And we need more people doing what you're doing, learning how to reconnect with the soil. And I think it's so inspirational because you just started this four or five years ago, and you're already learning so much through experience. And that's exactly what we need. We need more people learning how to create regenerative systems with the soil 
And we're especially going to need this as we go forward into a future that's not looking good for commercial agriculture. We need these sustainable systems to fall back on, to be resilient, and to grow sustainable communities. Again, I said it's inspirational because this is something that we can all maybe find a way to take part in. Maybe you have a full-time job, but you can start a garden on your property, start learning how to do these types of things, grow your own tomatoes. Maybe if you can get a hold of some land and start cultivating it in a sustainable way, we can all be a part of this. And that growing interest will prepare us for the future and and hopefully maybe even be fun along the way as well. Absolutely. One thing I, I would just briefly add in there to close with is that everybody doesn't necessarily have to be a farmer. One person who's farming could feed theoretically, depending on what scale you're, you're operating on, one person can feed quite a few people. So I think a huge thing that absolutely everybody could do is figure out how economically you can find and support these small farmers because farmers are an aging and and relatively small group in our country. You know, there's only so many because of consolidation. There's only so many farmers. They're getting older and there's this sort of resurgence of young people kind of getting more interested in this. And so everybody has the option to at least figure out, can I spend $10 a month? Can I spend $20, $30, $40 a month? Whatever you can afford and pump that back into your local economy. Find somebody around you. I guarantee you there's some 4-H kid who's raising rabbits or somebody who's got a garden or you know a local farmer who's selling something. If you could find that person and keep a little money in your local economy, even if it's just $10 a week, that's a huge bonus to keep in your local economy to, to give to these farmers as opposed to spending 100% of your income at a big box grocery store or whatever. Buy your staples there and, and you know allocate a little bit each month to a local farmer, I think would go a long way. I know that my customers who have done that have been incredibly supportive and I wouldn't honestly make it without them. And if I can just add one thing to that, sorry, David, um, is that beyond the market and the health of the food, these very obvious things, I bet a lot of people would be surprised. People who may be living in cities or neighborhoods that don't have a very strong, close-knit community, that if you get more involved in these types of things, going to your neighbors to talk about the tomatoes that they're growing or being a part of that, I bet you'll discover that there's also a real value in human connection around common uh, resources. I think that's something we all need to think about and something that we all need to take a bigger part in, not just for our resiliency, but for our sanity and for the joy of, of being human. Community, community, community. But I've got just one question, Chris, is, and maybe you can answer this. Uh, is there any way to get my cat to stop eating the plants that I grow? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't really have a great answer for that, David. I wish I did. <laughs> so I got it. I'll, I'll buy a dog. To scare my cat. Sorry about that. Yeah, then you won't have your then the dog. Then if the dog eats, then I'll get a bear to scare the the dog. (laughs) That's the process. Um, Uh, But seriously, Chris, do you have anything that you want to add? Plug. I'm sure people are interested in learning more about your farm and seeing what you're doing. I know you're on Instagram. Do you want to share that? Uh, sure. Thanks, David. Yeah, my farm is called Harvest Moon Garden and Orchard. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Harvest Moon Go. Um, and that's really the main way at this moment in which I'm sort of sharing what I'm doing at the farm. Um, we have a website in the works, but it's really not up and running yet. So we'll hopefully keep an eye out for that in the future. And the website is HarvestMoonGo.com. Unfortunately, there's not a whole lot on it. Well, thanks so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. I know I learned a lot and it's very interesting having somebody who's actually knowledgeable about these topics come and discuss them with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Also, thank you for the eggs that you gave me. Uh, So far, they're delicious. And I love the color, that deep orange, you know, that you don't see in the supermarket. We really appreciate having you on. 
thank you guys. Thank you for being uh, such wonderful hosts. And this has been really educational for me too. And I hope that um, I hope that a lot of people get some good information out of this. A lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible. We will never use ads to support this podcast, and we will never buy ads, as effective as that might be, on a platform like Facebook or any others. So if you enjoy it and would like us to keep going, you can support us by giving us a review and recommending us to a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read it. And if you have any stories related to this episode, maybe we can share that. You can find a full transcript of this episode, sources, links, and much more on our website, ashesashes.org. You can also find us on your favorite social media network at Ashes Ashes Cast. Next week, I'm going to be out of town, so we're going to have a very special episode, and I hope you tune in for it. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.